We've been thinking together about the path of forgiveness, and we have intentionally uh, had some great conversations, email, Facebook, uh, in person, uh, at the door, uh, just lots of ways that you have inspired and instructed me and taught me uh, in this school of forgiveness, and we've journeyed together. Uh, I didn't get to say everything I wanted to say. A lot of things uh, end up on the cutting room floor when you're limited uh, to just a few sermons. Uh, I intend to continue writing about forgiveness uh, next month in my Baptist News Global column that appears online and then subsequently in Word and Way uh, in the column that I write, uh, some new things and some different things that we didn't have time to develop. So I encourage you to read uh, in one of those locations as, as I try to, to just maybe uh, garner and gather up uh, some things that, that we've learned together on the path of forgiveness. But I'm grateful for what God has, uh, has taught me. And I'm grateful for the uncomfortableness that the Spirit has uh, produced in my life, nudging me uh, to deal with my own stuff uh, and, and not just preach about it. I'm going to be reading from Colossians chapter 2 as we conclude this uh, series and uh, sermon entitled, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, that theme of forgiveness. Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 through 15, and before I read that, I'll invite us to a time of prayer. So I uh, ask you to simply bow with me, to grow quiet, and to uh, use this time for some centering and focus. We've had much inspiration, much uh, spirit leadership in this worship, and sometimes we need a moment to absorb all of that and experience the presence of God in silence. And now, Almighty God and ever-living Heavenly Father, we come into your presence thanking you for your tender love sent to us in the person of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who took upon himself human nature, who took upon himself our suffering and our sorrows and our sin and our death. We thank you for the, the path of life and hope and liberation that comes through the power of Jesus Christ crucified. And we pray today for all of those who are suffering. We pray today for all of those who are ill. We pray today for all who are grieving, for those who are in the bondage of sin, for those who are ill mentally and in body. We pray for those serving in our armed forces. We pray for all of our mission partners, our friends in Ukraine and South Dakota, Kenya, Belarus, and our partnerships here locally as you bless South Elementary School, the staff, the students, and the families. We pray today for those who are hungry for food and hungry for the gospel. We pray for the homeless and we pray for the many refugees fleeing civil strife in Syria and finding no home. We ask today that you might open our minds to the power of the cross, but also to the powerlessness of the cross, that we might hear a fresh gospel word that would change the way we live and the people we are. 
bring our hearts to full attention. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now from Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, I'll be reading and I invite you to stand if you're able as we share together God's word and as I read this aloud. In him, that is in Christ, also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I want to begin by directing your attention to this powerful symbol that's on the communion table right here, this uh, rugged cross. And I know you've seen it, but I want you to see it again with a fresh set of eyes as I simply ask the question, why did Jesus of Nazareth die on the cross? There are a lot of answers to that. Um, At a human level, Jesus Christ died on the cross He was crucified because he got caught in the machine of Roman Empire and Judean temple politics and he got crushed by the system because he was rocking the boat and he was challenging the way things were. And the Romans crucified him so that they would make an example of him and encourage other people not to try what he had tried. That's at a human level. But at a spiritual level, a theological level, an eternal level, there are deeper reasons why Jesus died on the cross. The amazing gift of the Apostle Paul's life and thinking is that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he began to reflect on the cross in such a powerful way that he began to realize that God is able to take our worst and turn it into God's best. Isn't that a a beautiful way to summarize the cross, that God is able to take our worst and transform it into God's best by what God did at the cross. And so the Apostle Paul, in many scriptures, develops some powerful images of uh, what happened at the cross, why Jesus died. And this Colossians 2 scripture, uh, I think, is, is very special, and it doesn't get a lot of attention in Bible studies and uh, Sunday school curriculum, and, uh, and even in sermons. But it's rich with images as Paul tr- tries to uh, grope with language and the limits of language to explain to us why Jesus died on the cross. And so he's dealing with this when I survey the wondrous cross in his own mind and heart. And so let's listen in. The first thing Paul says is, when I survey the wondrous cross, I see a mirror. I see a mirror. The cross is a mirror of our own hatred 
and violence and sin and rebellion. When we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, we wonder how a man so good, a man so pure, a man so committed to love and nonviolence could end up executed in that way. And the truth simply is that the cross becomes a mirror of our ugliness, of our violence, of our hatred, of our sin. The uh, statement is, is simple but true. The crucifixion shows us the kind of people we really are. The Apostle Paul says that the cross shows us that we're dead in trespasses. The message translates that we are incapable of responding to God. We live in rebellion. We live with pride. And we are addicted to our own egos. And we are enslaved to selfishness. And the cross unveils all that in a way that nothing else could. We could never see some things about ourselves that we understand now if it weren't for the cross. I heard a preacher say one time that the cross is the only place in the world where we are fully known and yet fully loved. You see, in some, in some quarters, we may, we may be fully loved but not fully known. Or it might be the opposite in other situations. But at the cross, God knows all about our sin, and yet he loves us anyway. So when I survey the wondrous cross, Paul says, I see a mirror. We're dead. We're rebellious. But he goes on. When I survey the wondrous cross, he said, I see a great big eraser. Now, I used to say a blackboard eraser, but now I had to change it to a whiteboard eraser. And if the Apostle Paul were living today, he would not use the word eraser. He would say that at the cross of Jesus, I see a great big delete button on your computer, laptop, keyboard. Because listen to what Paul says in verse 13. We were dead in trespasses and sin. God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us. Erasing the record that stood against us. If the cross reveals to us the kind of people we really are, the cross also reveals to us the kind of God God really is. That he would love us so much that he would, at the cross, erase our sins. Now, the primitive tablets that were used for writing in Paul's day were very effective, but they were scarce, and they were, they were treated in a very special fashion. Some kind of parchment, with some kind of ink, and the scribe would write on it, but the parchment strips, or we would say the papers on which the scribe would write, were so scarce that they would reuse the same piece of, of tablet over and over again for writing legal documents. And they found a solution that would wipe that slate clean and erase that slate so that you couldn't see a single trace of what had been written before so that it was brand new and could be written on again. And so Paul says with that image in his mind 
This is what God has done for us in Christ. He's wiped the slate clean and there's no trace left of our sins. Imagine, think about your sins. Think about the things of which you're ashamed. And you wouldn't dare tell anyone else. All of that erased, marked out, no trace left. What a beautiful image. But Paul isn't done. He says, when I survey the wondrous cross, I not only see a mirror, I not only see a great big eraser. He said, when I survey the wondrous cross, I see a victory parade. And and who would think about a victory parade when this Nazarene peasant is being nailed to a piece of wood by the triumphant and powerful Roman soldiers? But Paul says, I'm looking past what happened then. I'm looking to the victory parade. And he says, at the cross... Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. Let me show you how the message paraphrases this. Uh, and uh, it's, it's very picturesque. Jesus stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. In ancient times, when a ruler conquered another army, the victory was celebrated by bringing the captive single file, manacled, shackled, walking in humiliation into the capital as the crowds cheered the victory over the defeated enemy. Paul says, this is the picture of the victory of the cross. But it's not a picture that we experience right now, it's a picture we will experience in the larger span of history. Now, we need this this morning because there are some of us sitting here saying, I I just can't believe that Jesus would forgive my sin. You don't know what terrible things I've done. You need to back up and take the eternal perspective and see the ultimate victory parade that the cross produces as all of your life enemies are defeated and you are pronounced forgiven. There are other people here this morning that are carrying around poisonous grudges against God, against other people, and you're hanging on to some injustice that was done to you, and you haven't seen it made right, and you're bitter about that. You need to back up and see what Paul sees when he sees the cross, and know that someday there will be a victory, victory parade, and all the forces of darkness... And all of the forces of injustice will be forced to march in humiliation as Christ the victor declares liberation and joy and freedom. When I survey the wondrous cross, Paul says, I see all of this and more. But you know, there are limits to images and analogies. You know, the cross is like this or Jesus dying for us is like that. There are limits to that because no single image can, can capture what God really did for us in Christ on the cross. No single analogy can plumb the depths of the mystery of what Jesus Christ did for us. For example, you've heard sometimes preachers uh, use the analogy uh, that God is the judge, Jesus is our lawyer pleading our case before the judge. Well, that analogy works up to a certain point because Scripture does declare that God is a judge. 
And scripture does declare that Jesus Christ is our advocate. But you know, that analogy has limits because God isn't like human judges that we know who are supposed to be impartial. God's not impartial. If God were impartial, we'd all be doomed and damned. God is not that kind of judge. God is the one who is in Christ and who loves us. It's not God is angry at us and Jesus is trying to placate him. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God loves us. God was with Jesus and in Jesus dying and suffering on that cross. God is our advocate. God is our friend. God is engaged with us. God is is coming near us. And the cross is the message that God in Christ never stops coming after us. And his love is real in Jesus Christ. There's just no one single analogy that captures all of it. But I do know this. All through this sermon series during this season of Lent, without fail, every Sunday, no matter the text and the topic, we have reminded one another that the only way we can forgive other people is if we are nourished by God's forgiveness of us in Jesus Christ. That the root of our capacity to forgive others is found in God's forgiveness of us in Jesus, that the root of our forgiveness of ourselves is found in God's forgiveness of us in Jesus Christ. And there's just simply no getting around that. I agree with Tony Evans, who has recently written a book on what happened at the cross. He says that if your understanding of the cross doesn't bring you more in love with God, then something's wrong with your view of the cross. That if your understanding of the cross doesn't lead you to love people more, then something's messed up in your understanding of the cross. If your understanding of the cross doesn't lead you to do away with violence and hatred and grudge-bearing and an unforgiving spirit then something is messed up with your understanding of the cross. Because it's at the cross that Jesus empowers us to move toward reconciliation and nonviolence and love and forgiveness. That's the way God works. And if you are here this morning and you are saying about some grudge that you are holding against someone... I don't feel like forgiving that person. Just remember this. Someone's already died for that person's sin. Someone already has sacrificed for that person's sin. You don't have to get that person to pay for it again. It's all paid for. Years ago, Myron Madden a therapist and Christian Baptist pastor, wrote a a monthly column in the Home Life magazine. People would write in about family problems and family struggles, uh, sort of an advice column, and each month he would write some replies from some sample letters. One month, a family had written in and said, uh, our marriage is in trouble. Uh, We are fighting as husband and wife all the time. 
And our young son has ingested that pain and that, and that animosity and that anger and that aggression. And he's starting to act out in school and on the bus and on the playground. And he's creating all kinds of behavior problems as if he's trying to divert our attention away from fighting with each other, having us be mad at him so we won't be mad at each other. Madden wrote them some very thoughtful and concise suggestions. And then I'll never forget, at the end of his answer, he said, and by the way, tell your son, someone's already given his life for, your, for his parents' sins. He doesn't have to do it again. He doesn't have to die for his parents' sins. Someone else has. If the cross of Jesus does not change the way we experience forgiveness and relationships in our daily experience, then we need to read the text again. When I survey the wondrous cross, what I see is God making room on a hill called Calvary and standing on that hill, spreading his arms and saying, I love you this much. And then he looks at us and invites us to come stand with him, with our arms outstretched, and to say to others, I forgive you. I love you this much.